Welcome to Hebrew Bible Insights, a podcast about making sense of the Hebrew Bible. We engage in the study of the Hebrew Bible in its ancient Near Eastern context and original languages to promote good and reasonable interpretation of Scripture so that the church might live more faithfully in the present. Welcome to Hebrew Bible Insights, a podcast about making sense of the Hebrew Bible. I'm Matthew Delaney, and today we are going to talk about Micah chapter 3, a really interesting chapter in one of the prophetic books where God doesn't just call out the wickedness of the leadership in general or the kings or the priests, but in this chapter, he calls out the wickedness of the prophets using very creative and intense language. Before we dive in, uh, just a reminder that you can find our content anywhere you listen to audio podcast platforms or on YouTube. Plus, if you would like to uh, join our Hebrew Bible book club, you can be a part of our community that does deep dives every month into part of the Hebrew Bible. You can check us out on Patreon, link in the description below. So let's talk about Micah chapter three. I think this is a really interesting example of many elements that are important for understanding the poetic prophets. The poetic prophets are, I think, such a love-hate relationship for so many people in the journey of trying to make sense of the Hebrew Bible. Because on one side, you have some of the most well-written literature about God, about Israel, about their struggles and challenges and God's continued pursuit of his people. But on the other side, we have some of the most difficult language to figure out and sometimes keeping track of the rhetoric and the, the flow of thought and the rare word usage. It can be really difficult. In fact, in Hebrew, this is very true. The Hebrew of biblical Hebrew poetry is way more difficult than reading narrative. So whether you're looking at this in English or in Hebrew, the prophets can be difficult. One of the other challenges is one of the themes of the poetic prophets is the exile, which is a really brutal event for the people of Israel. And understandably, this can be difficult for us to navigate theologically. And uh, how do we approach this? What does this mean about the character of God? So a lot to unpack. We're not going to answer all the questions in one episode. Um, well, that's what makes it fun, by the way, is it's a lifelong journey of engaging with Scripture. With that said, I think Micah chapter 3 is a great example for um, approaching some of the elements of the prophets. One of the first ones I would say is there are two sides of the coin of biblical Hebrew prophecy. On one side, we have messages of judgment and the messages of hope. And depending on our background or our approach to the prophets, we might only think of one and associate one of those things with the prophets. For example, you might think about there are super long chapters about how God is going to punish Israel for their unfaithfulness and in graphic detail with uh, brutal imagery, the exile is described in painful, painstakingly long details. And we might think that's what the poetic prophets are all about. It's all about judgment. And while some people might find that interesting, others think, what's the point of that? Why would I revisit this time and time again? I don't want to read this really intense poetry about 
God punishing his people. Why would I want to do that? On the other side, though, what we might forget about is there are great messages of hope within the prophets. This is where we have some of the most beautiful language of God's faithfulness to Israel in spite of their unfaithfulness to him and the Lord's great love toward his people. This also is where we often find some of the uh, elements of prophecy that relate to the New Testament that people like so much. Now, I think there's a problem if we only engage with one side or the other, because uh, if we don't engage with the judgment side, then we we might be ignoring the reality of sin and evil in the world and what that was in ancient Israel. Whereas if we ignore the hope, then we might assume and think that um, that that we only we only we, we miss parts of the characteristics of God, which is His faithfulness to His people, and also the fact that Israel, even though they're unfaithful, they are not able to completely stop what God's plan is for humanity. Both sides are really important, and Micah is a great book that illustrates all of this in a really compact way. In the seven chapters of the book of Micah we see um, a great balance. In fact, the, the literary structure is very intentional where we, we see the Hebrew verb shama appears a few different times in the book and it divides the book into a few sections, chapters one through two, and then chapters three through five, and then chapters six through seven. And uh, the, the verb shama appears at the beginning of each of these sections, which means to hear or to listen. And each of these sections begins with a section about judgment, and then it ends with a section on hope. And so it creates these cycles that happen throughout the course of the book, and it hits both sides of the coin. So if you want a one of the shorter, concise, poetic prof, prophet books that covers both sides of the coin fairly evenly, and you see how they interact with each other, and then you get the repetition to where it'll really hit home, I think this is a great book to get a, a snapshot picture and, but in, a, in, a, in a concise book to see how these two different themes break down. Now, something else I think that we should mention uh, about the nature of prophecy, because this will be relevant for, the, relevant for the book of Micah and what it means for us today, is something that one of our recent uh, podcast interviews uh, with Dr. Lena Sophia Tiemeyer which great episode. This was with Dr. Nathan French's PhD supervisor back when he did his PhD dissertation. And she's done a lot of work in the Poetic Prophets. She mentions that, uh, the, that a unique and important characteristic about the Hebrew Prophets is that these messages of judgment are not uh, fatalistic. It's not uh, okay, this is written in stone and it's there's no way it'll be changed. In fact, there are multiple examples within the Hebrew Bible, whether the book of Jonah as a whole is a good example of this, or in the book of Jeremiah, uh, I believe it's chapter 18, is where we see a really important example about where God says, if I proclaim that bad will happen to a nation because they are wicked and evil, but if they repent and turn their ways, then I'll relent of that bad that I was going to do. And on the other hand, if I proclaim good upon a nation, but they decide to be unfaithful and to be wicked, 
then I will instead cause bad to come to them instead of the good. And so one of the points that Dr. Lena Sophia Tiemeyer makes is that all prophecy is trying to lead people to make a decision. It's not like, oh, there's judgment. Oh, now there's no hope. It's trying to admonish and wake up people to the reality of their sin and lead them to change, lead them to repentance. Now, people can respond to that however they want, but ultimately there are some people who took these prophets seriously and they, they recorded their, their, uh, their sermons and their oracles and their words, their writings, and passed them on for generations. And they took their words to heart and they chose the life of repentance that leads to forgiveness and restoration. Now, many, of course, did not, and the exile did end up coming because most of Israel decided to ignore what the prophets had to say. But it doesn't mean that it's over when the message is given. It's supposed to lead people to repentance. And the same goes for the messages of hope, by the way. Those two are not always viewed in such a, oh, of course, you know, this good will happen. Now, there is an element that God's going to accomplish his plans and purposes for humanity. That's true. But even the sections that have really good things in them, messages of hope, there are still things that God admonishes his people to do. Even in those sections, you see the call to covenant faithfulness, because that is the key that God is trying to draw his people into. Now, in Micah chapter 3, we dive straight into a section where God is calling out the leadership of Israel. Now, God calls out all kinds of people in Israel, from the highest to the lowest of people who have abandoned the covenant with God. But there's unique attention that's given to leadership because they have a different kind of position of power and authority and influence and resources. And so they're called to a higher standard. And their wickedness impacts so many people. In fact, one of the pastors I had when I was younger, he used to say that leadership flows downstream. And when you think of all the wickedness of these leaders that impacted so many people, there's a reason that sometimes God gives special attention to them. And in chapter three, we see that God, uh, after a few verses, he specifically calls out the prophets. And this is where I want to dive into some of the details. I think you guys will find this really interesting. I know I did as I was reading. So let's go ahead and dive in and look at some of uh, Micah chapter three. So in Micah chapter three, verse five, God starts focusing specifically on the prophets. And I have the Hebrew up here and uh, of the Masoretic text and also the ESV translation for those of you on YouTube, those of you on audio podcast platforms, you can uh, listen to me describe the scenario. I'll make sure to keep everyone in mind, whether you're watching or listening. Verse five says, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. So one thing that we see is the prophets here, they've become prophets for hire. And we know uh, based on archeology span in the ancient Near East, that this was a common practice. In fact, we also know this from the Hebrew Bible itself. Balaam is probably one of the most uh, famous prophets for hire, who is hired to 
uh, curse Israel in the book of Numbers, but of course he can only bless them. Uh, in Mari, we have a really important archive that we've discovered, and we learn a lot about prophets from this archive, and we see that they were prophets for hire, and we know that sometimes they even would require clothes as the payment for their services. Well, in the book of Micah, peace, the prophet does when they have something to eat. In other words, when, when someone gives them what they want, they say, oh, peace will be upon you. But the person who is seeking a word and doesn't give them what they want, who puts nothing into their mouths, he declares war against them, saying that only evil is going to come upon you. So this is a picture of a prophet who's only out for personal gain. It's all about what he wants. Doesn't, he doesn't care about actually uh, being a mouthpiece for the word of God to people. And ultimately, what message is he giving people? He's giving, message, uh, he's giving the people uh, a message about their own life. And these prophets, the, the message that they're giving to their people is just one of empty praise if they're even giving them what they want to hear. So these prophets are very wicked. I want to highlight something in Hebrew that I think is really interesting. The phrase, who cry peace when they have something to eat. I want to break this down a little bit because the Hebrew is interesting. It's hanoshchim b'shinehem v'karu shalom. So uh, first off, the, the, the Hebrew is inverted here. Who cry peace is at the is second and before is when they have something to eat. What they're what the Hebrew what they're translating in Hebrew is it's two words in Hebrew, Hanoshim, which means the biting ones. Bishinehem is with their teeth. Okay? The biting ones with their teeth. And you know, biblical Hebrew para, uh, biblical Hebrew poetry is very terse by nature. Each line tends to only have three to four words on average. And so it's really compact. It's really tight. But what I want to point out here is the picture is you're imagining a prophet um, biting with their teeth, which is a very grotesque image. But it gets even worse when we know this is not the normal Hebrew word for bite. This is the word nashach. And nashach only appears 11 times in the entire Hebrew Bible. Once in Micah. And all other 10 times does not refer to human biting. It doesn't just refer to general animal biting. It refers specifically to snake bites, the way that serpents strike out and bite something. So I think we can see that the, the idea of a brood of vipers being a way to describe hypocritical spiritual leaders has its rooting in a passage like Micah where God is calling the prophets snakes. He's calling them serpents, the ones who are supposed to be the ones speaking and using their voice on behalf of God Almighty. Instead, they're being compared to the first deceiver, the serpent, the one who does not speak the word of God, but instead is deceiving and is lying and doing things to hurt God's people. Wow. So this is obviously a direct affront against the wicked prophets of the times of Israel. But I think that the implication for people today and people throughout history is pretty straightforward. It's to not be hypocrites. 
that it's for us to actually live lives of integrity to the calling that's been put on our lives, whatever that is. And every career, every vocation has an ironic challenge with it. If we're going to be a teacher, are we going to walk the walk or are we only going to talk the talk? For those who are put in leadership positions, are you actually going to care for the people that you lead or are you going to step on their necks in order to reach new heights for yourself personally? And for prophets, are you actually going to be a mouthpiece for the will of God or are you instead deciding to uh, lie to people about your experience or lack thereof with God to get your way? And that's what we see with the prophets here in the book of Micah. So let's continue. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall cover their lips for there is no answer from God. Often the way, one of the ways that prophets would hear from God in the Hebrew Bible is uh, through dreams or visions. And there's a setting described, okay, it's nighttime now. And this is a time when maybe a prophet would experience some sort of communication with God. But here we find that there is absolutely no answer from God. There's, they have no connection and no sort of answer at all. And I wonder what all is envisioned here, pun intended, what's envisioned here in this section, because are these prophets actually seeking um, the words of, of Yahweh here, or are they seeking words uh, from other divine beings, whether they're prophets of Baal or uh, who knows what they're going after if they're not caring about the Lord? Not sure here. Maybe, you know, the Lord himself has stopped speaking to them entirely, or maybe he's cut off all divine communication from them. Either way, their rhythm is completely disrupted and they have completely lost their ability to communicate anything from the divine realm. And it leads them to a place of intense shame. The seers shall, shall, shall be disgraced and the diviners shall be put to shame and they shall all cover their lips. There's something cool here in Hebrew. This verse is, Uvoshu hachuzim v'chafru hakosmim. Again, this is the seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there's no answer from God. I want to highlight two phrases here. One is the, the phrase, they shall all cover their lips. This is a really interesting phrase in Hebrew. This, uh, to refer to the phrase generally, we could say ata. Safa, for someone to atah safa, which is to cover lips, this specific phrase uh, is used in certain types of settings where it's either settings of mourning, like you'll find in Ezekiel 24 17, or really interestingly, it's used in places like Leviticus 13 45, where it describes the response that the ritually impure and the ritually unclean have, specifically people with leprosy. Whenever uh, they're there to be outside the camp and to shout out unclean, unclean, it's said that they cover their lips and shout unclean, unclean. This is the response 
that these wicked prophets now have. They are, so what, what's the point? Why connect it to these, the way they're covering their lips? This means that they're, they're mourning like, like they're mourning the dead. Like, like their life is, is, is something of death now, or they're, they are crying out like the ritually unclean leprous person outside the camp. What's going on? You know, this might be kind of crass and intense, but these prophets have been prophetically neutered and they're as useless as a leprous person in the society of ancient Israel. That's what God has reduced these hypocritical evil prophets to, completely debasing them and humbling them. So this next phrase, for there is no answer from God, ki ein ma'ane Elohim, for there is no answer from God. This is a really interesting phrase, especially in light of, I'm referring again to the Mari archives that have been discovered, uh, a lot of ancient cuneiform tablets that give us insight into the ancient Near Eastern world, where there, one of the, one of the other words for prophet is apilum in Akkadian, which means answerer, answerer. And this kind of gives insight to what prophets did. People sought them out for an answer and they were, they would mediate between that person and God in a way. They're the go-between going to the God, going to the deity, and then bringing back an answer for the person and the question that they had. And here we see they have no answer. The one who's supposed to be the answer has none. The one thing that you're supposed to be able to do, you can't do. The one thing you're supposed to have, you don't have. Because God is the source of all wisdom and might and strength. One of my favorite prayers from the book, uh, from the Hebrew Bible, is in the book of Daniel. It's a Hebrew prayer. May the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And anytime people think it's by my power, it's by my might, it's by my wisdom, it's by my authority, they're going to experience a humbling. It is because of God that they have those things. And they, they must submit what they have to God and for his purposes. Now we're about to experience a sharp contrast in this next line. We've been focused on the wicked prophets, but now Micah speaks in verse 8. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Let's go ahead and read that in Hebrew. Ve'ulam anochi maleti koach et ruach Adonai umishpat ugvura lagid liyakov pisho Israel chatato. I think the ESV here does a pretty good job overall. I like how they say, but as for me, because in Hebrew we have ve'ulam, which is a way of saying, uh, we have vid, which is a general conjunction connecting things. Ulam, meaning something but or however. And then anochi, which is, a, which is the word I, which we actually don't need uh, in this syntax for Hebrew. We, we don't even need that word. And that word's also there before the verb. So this is putting an emphasis on the subject. And the ESV does a good job. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of Yahweh, and with justice and strength or with might 
to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So instead of these prophets who have no power, we see there is a prophet who does have power, power from God. And what is he going to do? This is really key. He is there to declare to Jacob and Israel, to declare their transgression, their sin. This is totally different from the evil prophets who they're out for self-gain. And they tell people what they want to hear as long as they get what they want. Micah is not here to do that. He's here to say what the word of God is. And he's here to say, you've sinned. You need to repent of the wickedness within you. It's hard to not make connections here to the New Testament and to think about the idea of Jesus as one who ultimately has come and will come with power and might. And one of the first parts of his message is to declare the sin of the people of the world and to call them to repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Okay, let's go to chapter four. I want to show you the other side of the coin. Remember how we have judgment and hope. And the book of Micah, each section, one through two, three through five, six through seven, each section has both sides of this. And the, chapter three generally talks about the judgment portion. But then chapter four suddenly shifts focus entirely. And we're given a message of powerful hope. Let me show you. Micah 4 1 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So what is this a picture of? This is one of the ways of communicating the idea that God wants all the families of the earth to be reunited to himself. And often this uh, happens at a specific location, the mountain of the Lord, which is at Zion, classic prophetic language around this, and mountain being uh, the highest point, the overlap of heaven and earth, the place where uh, you'd build temples, place where God's presence would be, and all nations are coming to the mountain of God. And they're, they're beating their, their, their swords and their weaponry into, into, uh, into farming equipment. There's no more war. Things are totally different. This is a message of a hope for a future when all people submit themselves to the Lord. And it's a powerful picture that shows a great picture for the future. Something that we desire. Something that the prophets deeply wanted. So between chapter three and four, we get 
both elements of this picture. And um, I think it's also hard, once again, to not see how all of this can relate ultimately to Jesus, that he is the one who came and will come again in power and might to call all to repentance of sins and to usher in the kingdom of God for all to come to the kingdom of God. So this is an example of how the prophets can work. So I think Micah chapter 3 and 4 is an excellent place to dive in and get some excellent insights on the Hebrew Bible, understand how biblical Hebrew uh, poetic uh, prophecy literature tends to work, the components it tends to have with it. Obviously, it's not totally comprehensive, but I highly recommend giving Micah a read and notice each section, chapters 1 and 2, 3 through 5, and 6 through 7, and see if you can note the messages of judgment that are ultimately there to hopefully lead people to repentance. But most people don't take that path uh, in the time of Micah. Or also the messages of hope that there are in the chapter that inspire people to a great future that God is trying to use his covenant people um, uniquely for the plot of scripture. It's a really powerful part of the Bible. I really enjoyed reading in the book of Micah. And I highly recommend that you guys uh, check it out uh, for yourselves. And let me know what you think. Give it a read, uh, especially chapters three through four. In the comments section below, I'd love to see what are your guys' thoughts on the book of Micah. Thanks for joining me for uh, this episode, and we'll see you in the next one.